most of the the kind of Eastern religions are going to say that you know once you do some investigation, you discover you are God. You are are the the connected consciousness to every living being and every inanimate object in the universe. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. Warning, if you're afraid of going deep on controversial fringe topics and potentially exploring the nature of reality, then today's episode will throw you in a twist. Today we've got Yuvi Ivanova and Mike Gillian on the program, hosts of the Future Thinkers podcast, a show on the evolution of technology, society, and consciousness. They've co-founded Plovdiv Digital, an innovation hub and startup incubator for technologies like blockchain, VR, and AI, and also run Cutting Machinery, a blog and app focused on meditation and consciousness. The two are also very bullish on crypto and blockchain, running the crypto radio show and co-syndicate.io. I find these two to be very interesting futurists and explorers of the human experience, and I'm very excited to have both on the program. I want to tell you right now, things get a little bit trippy. We get deep into the weeds of what it means to be human, alive, and conscious. You had your warning. Today, we discuss the nature of consciousness and how Mike and Yuvi explore it, the role of psychedelics and self-actualization. Why the world operates potentially in a quantum confusion. How to create your own level of sovereignty and control in your life. Why UV and Mike got excited about Bitcoin and blockchain. How travel transforms you as a person and society. Why Mike's optimistic and realistic about the future. Where we're headed with AI and automation and what it all means. The complexities of the universe and how to understand or accept them. And for a bonus, how you can control dice just by thinking about it. Sounds absurd. It is. We'll jump into it in a sec. And now, without further ado, I give you Mike Gillian and UV Ivanova. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off, delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. 
Use offer code DISRUPTORS to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So we were talking a little bit about the program, and Mike's not supposed to talk about drugs and psychedelics. So let's jump right there. What's your experience, guys? (laughs) Oh, man. Great. That's a good place to start. Well, we've actually talked a lot about the stuff on our podcast. I've got some interesting stories of doing mushrooms when I was 18 and ice fishing in the uh, the winters of Canada. We've done s- some crazy stuff with DMT and kind of documenting our experiences with that. I accidentally did Vapowasco once, and that was a horrific show. But yeah, I'm, I swear I'm not an addict. Oh, we just like to explore our consciousness to its outer limits, and sometimes that results in us falling off the map. Yeah. That's how it works. Our tagline is exploring the edges of human understanding, both for future and in terms of consciousness. That's a lot of the reason I wanted to get you guys on. You got a great podcast. And I wanted to dive into that a little bit more. What have those experiences revealed to you about consciousness and who you are, what you are? Oh, boy. (laughs) Straight into the deep end. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I don't even know where to start with that. Well, I mean, most most of the, the kind of Eastern religions are going to say that, you know, once you do some investigation, you discover you are God. Uh, you are, are the, the connected consciousness to every living being and every inanimate object in the universe. So I've, I suppose we could talk about some of the, the actual experiences of that, but through psychedelics and meditation. But I mean, that, that's kind of like the, the cheat sheet answer at the end of all of the meditation that you do. I'm God. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a solid cheat sheet. They've written long books about what that means to be God. So I think uh, let's, let's go there a little bit because I think it is very interesting and becoming more relevant as more and more people in the tech industry look to expand. Essentially, we've gotten to the point where we as a species, do we live long enough in terms of we're not going to die of starvation and we need to have some type of Maslow's hierarchy of awesomeness. And you guys are trying to go, it sounds like, a little bit higher up. What pushed you there? I think a big part of it was when we started traveling and we, we were doing this digital nomad thing, kind of like taking it straight from the four-hour workweek script, started an online business, tried to automate as much of, as we could, hire as much as we could while we're traveling and, and kind of like exploring the world. And what that did was give us a lot of our time back, which allowed for us to kind of focus more on the things we wanted to focus on, things that are entertaining or interesting to us. So we ended up reading a lot of books and, and having a lot of interesting conversations. And I think we, we both managed to push past this sort of existential fear of like, okay, what's next? What happens after you've got your time back and you can just do what you want? And I think most people we've met who have done the same kind of thing have also faced this existential question of what, what now what? Now what do I do with my life? So we just basically gave that time to ourselves and read a lot of books about different subjects, about consciousness and, and life and death and philosophy and all kinds of stuff, and then just kind of went from there. Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff, you can read books about it, but if you just have a conceptual understanding of it, it does not compare to the actual lived experience of it. And I think that's the most interesting part. I mean, we've done both a lot of meditation and psychedelics as well, but far more meditation for me, at least. I mean, going on eight years now, I've been doing meditation, Mike, a bit longer. And both of us became interested in consciousness and how the mind works quite early on in our teens. And I don't know what got me started on it personally, but I remember just questioning those things since I was 12. It's just been a a lifelong interest for me. And um, I got 
particularly serious about it in the last couple of years. I was meditating for over an hour a day. And uh, yeah, some pretty weird stuff happens when your mind, <laughs> with your mind when you do that. <laughs> Are you guys a couple? I never got that. Yeah, we're married. We're married, yeah. Okay. What's it like where you're both exploring these experiences? And I imagine one of you is probably going to be further along than the other, and that'll make things awkward, tense. What's, what's the dynamic like that there? I think if you think you've mastered anything and there's nothing left to learn, then you're kind of fooling yourself. So, I, I mean, on some levels, Yuvi's much further ahead of me on, on some things. and some levels, I'm further ahead than she is. So I think we both kind of first try and strip the ego away from whatever it is that we're, we're trying to talk about or learn or get better at. And then if there's room for either of us to help each other, then that's what we'll attempt to do. But I think in like across many dimensions in a relationship, like if you're working together, if you're exploring these topics together, if you're right now we're making music together, like there's lots of different things we do together. And uh, if we didn't have the ego part of it under control, when someone's giving you feedback or criticism, then it would be more of a nightmare than a, than a fun experience. So I think that's probably the first thing. Yeah, actually, I wanted to share uh, some interesting stuff that I've been learning recently. And I've had these experiences. And recently, I've become interested in what is actually happening in the brain when these things are happening. So I've started reading up on neuroscience and, and brain imaging and all sorts of research that they've done in this area. And it's quite interesting because so it seems that they have found a brain circuit that refer that we refer to as the ego. And it's the default mode network, which is the, the part of the brain, or it's a network in the brain that is responsible for self-referential thoughts. So thoughts about me, like what is my body? What is my mind? What is my personality? Like how does the world relate to me? How is it relevant for me? It's basically the storyteller. It, it is the storyteller, but there's more to it because it's also your sense of where your body ends and where the world begins, or your awareness of how you are doing something in the world as an agent. So it's a very useful part of the mind, obviously it kept us alive for a long time. That's why it's there. But when people get too caught up in this default mode network, and so first of all, we have two, two networks that seem to be activated at different times. So they, they're normally not activated at the same time. They're like a seesaw. So the default mode network is the self-referencing thoughts. And then the, I think it's called task-oriented network, but I might be screwing up the exact term. And that's when we have a task to do, when we have an objective, we're doing something in the world. And that's why people get into a flow state. For example, athletes or artists, when they're, you know, singing or running, they feel like their sense of self disappears. And it's because the default mode network in the brain is actually not activated. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their objective. So what happens if you do really, really a lot of meditation? And I mean, like 10, 20 years of meditation, you become capable of activating both of those networks at the same time. And that's what they think produces what they call non-dual awareness. So this is also known as enlightenment, also known as enlightenment or awake, the awakened state. And what this is, is a profound sense of oneness with everything where you no longer feel like you are separate from the world and you no longer feel like you are contained within your body and your mind is contained within your head, which is this kind of sense that, well, I am everything. I am God. And it's interesting because they've actually been able to observe this in MRI scans of Buddhist monks. So it's not some mystical boo-boo thing. It actually exists. And it's a result of doing really, really a lot of meditation. Hey, Matt here. I've met a couple of companies working on neural feedback and looking at EEG specifically to be able to help people reach these flow meditative type states faster, though it doesn't take decades. We're looking to have a startup or two on the program. If you know anyone great, matt at fringe.fm. Shoot us guest requests and we'll do the best we can to get the world's coolest people on.
So actually, what is what is interesting in this study is that the default mode network is not deactivated in these states. It is active, but it's active at the same time as the task-oriented network. So instead of thinking about yourself, you feel a oneness with everything and a connectedness with everything and the boundary of self dissolves so that you feel like you're, you're capable of everything and anything, but at the same time, you don't have to do it because everything already is, if that makes sense. It, yeah. So yeah, it's a kind of a long-winded explanation, but to get back to the idea of ego, the, the kind of the new age idea that you have to kill the ego is completely incorrect, both scientifically and experientially with these types of things. So it's, yeah, it's less about killing the ego, but more about having the ego get kind of absorbed into everything else. Because technically, if you killed the ego, you would die. You would. Well, you would be psychotic. There, you would not have any reference point for what you are, or you would be perpetually in a flow state, which I don't even know is possible. Like you, like if you got hurt, you wouldn't bother to, you know, wipe your wound. Or if you lost a leg, you wouldn't bother to go to the doctor because you would have no sense of self. This sounds like what some of the, the ancient tribes would use. They would drug themselves up so they wouldn't feel pain and they would go into battle fearless and ready to kill. We're going to jump into the actual science behind drugs and the different categories. Enjoy. Well, I'm, I think you have to have a more sophisticated kind of definition of what what certain drugs are doing. There's there's basically three categories of drugs, and you're basically looking at stimulants, depressants, and psychedelics. And I, th- I think psychedelics are quite separate. So in, in the case of the warriors going to battle, they're probably doing something to numb the physical body, not necessarily... It could have an effect of like a stimulant on, on the mind, but um, really psychedelics are of an entirely different category. Yeah, completely different category. But actually, it's interesting that you bring it up because They've done MRI studies of ayahuasca and mushrooms as well. And what they've noticed is that the activity in the default mode network does decrease. So this is, it's not quite the same as a non-dual awareness. It's more similar to a flow state. But you also have other activity, which the brain becomes really hyper interconnected. So you associate things that you normally don't associate, which is why, you know, people have hallucinations and strange thoughts. So it, it's more related to, to creativity and open-mindedness and this kind of thing. Not so, not so much related to non-dual awareness. So going off of that, I know you have a lot of interest in, in AI, artificial intelligence, and I imagine it has to do with, is intelligence inherent in driving consciousness? What, uh, what spurs you guys to get into futurism? Uh, it's kind of the same answer as what got us into consciousness. It's just thinking about having the time to think about life and, and anything. I guess when your present day is kind of taken care of and your, your week or your month ahead is taken care of, then you just start getting a little bit more forward thinking. At least that's kind of natural for me. So, I mean, I was interested in technology. I was interested in futurism. Yuvi and I were having a lot of interesting conversations, reading a lot of books, and that kind of like spurred the conversations. But I wouldn't necessarily say futurism is is the number one thing. It just happens to be like the interesting question at the end of every interview that we do, like, what's your vision of a future, a positive future that you want to create? Because I'm like intention and actually creating what you're envisioning instead of just kind of going along with whatever direction the entire world is moving in by default. I think that's sort of like the critical difference we want to have and 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 do with our podcast is like be intentional about what we're creating in, in the future. So yeah, it's not so much futurism. It's just about intention. I think in a general sense, people are, what makes us unique as creatures is that we're very exploratory in comparison to other animals. And some people are more exploratory than others. And archetypally, we're both very much 
explorers. And we want to explore not only the existing map, but also follow the map and find what's there. And the future is one of those things that is just not on the map yet. So it's wide open. You can create it. You can envision it. You can do anything you want with it because it's not set in stone. And in my case, I grew up in the collapse of Soviet Union. So it was far from a perfect environment. And I saw that, you know, I was surrounded by all these brilliant, creative, capable people, but they didn't have the environment to self-actualize and, and to do something in the world. And, you know, I watched on TV these people in other countries doing amazing things, seemingly. And I wondered why is there such a big difference? Like, why is it that in my country people can't do it? They don't have these opportunities, but somewhere else they can. And so that differentiation created in my mind this idea, okay, well, what kind of world can, can we create that would allow for people to express themselves and to self-actualize and to create something amazing? And then, you know, when I started traveling, also my sense of the world broadened even more. And I started thinking, well, how can we create this amazing future where everybody can self-actualize that is also good for everybody else on the planet and is good for the planet and for the animals and that can sustain our civilization for, you know, many more years to come because obviously climate change and, and wars and destruction is something that could stop it at some point. I mean, these are real existential risks. So. I don't know. It's been a long process for both of us just thinking about these things. It wasn't really like a single aha moment. It's kind of just a lifelong of things overlaid on top of each other. I think on the artificial intelligence question, it's more of sort of an abstract question in, in my mind of what are the limitations of my own consciousness and what would that look like if it were, uh, if those limitations were removed in a, a synthetic consciousness? So that's what got me into artificial intelligence is what would what would my mind like would be like without the limitations that it has. So I started taking courses on machine learning and artificial intelligence and basically came to the conclusion that we're nowhere near replicating that, mm -hmm. at, at least on, you know, creating conscious beings. So I kind of put it away and, and thought like, it's a nice idea for the future, but I don't think we're very close to it. So I'll just explore consciousness on my own and see what my own limitations are. Hey, Matt here. We're about to jump off the rails and get into some really deep Mm. Don't want to swear on the podcast, so we'll just drop it as a mm. It's very interesting, though, and I think you'll really enjoy this next part with Mike. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the brain, the human brain has been a machine in the works for how many billions of years from the beginning of life on this planet? And it's been how many iterations? So, you know, thinking that we as a humanity can create a super intelligent AI that can rival that is pretty ambitious. And I don't know if it's accurate. So. I mean, people, uh, people compare artificial intelligence to human intelligence, but I don't think it's even in the same category because the human mind is... Uh, we had a, a guest on our show called Kirby Surprise who studies consciousness, and he said that the human mind is the most powerful quantum supercomputer in the known universe. So I think that's a pretty good definition. And if we want to create super intelligent AI that could rival the human mind, it would have to be something in that category. Possibly. But also when you look at technology, oftentimes things are done and suddenly a breakthrough makes things significantly more efficient. So whether that's a new type of engine or a higher gear ratio, there's always ways where as you start to figure things out, the simpler method becomes the, the more elegant, the more complex. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just am saying that the people that feel that it's only a game of numbers and getting to a certain number of neurons may be underestimating the ability of something more than evolution to evolve. If that well, I, I'm, 
I'm not so much of a, a skeptic that I would deny the possibility of creating consciousness in artificial intelligence altogether. I just think the current methods we're using now to to uncover this are not not there yet. But I do think, based off of what I've experienced with meditation and psychedelics, I do think that there's interesting ideas in the phenomenon of consciousness being either multidimensional or some sort of quantum phenomenon. And I've explored that category a little bit. And it seems like a very difficult thing to prove, if not an impossible thing to improve. But with when you have a degree of complexity in a network, plus a degree of randomness in that network, I think it's possible. So maybe something like the actual architecture of the internet could prove to be some sort of artificial intelligence, or at least some basis of intelligence to build off of in the future. Yeah, if this is something that you're interested in, there's there are two scientists that are studying this, uh, Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch. They are both studying consciousness as a, a complex systems phenomenon. And so they're comparing it to different machine learning algorithms and the internet and different kinds of networks. It's quite interesting. And blockchain, I know you guys are quite deep in that rabbit hole. How do you see that playing out with A, AI, and then B, just industries in general? It's quite financially focused now, which I find to be a little bit annoying. However, I think the the possibilities of it in the future are quite interesting. Uh, we did have a good chat with, um, oh shit, what was his name? Uh, the guy at the conference the with the funky hat. He's like the mo- most well-known guy in artificial intelligence. Anyway, oh, Ben Gertzel, ben yes. Gertzel, yeah. Uh, we did have a good chat with Ben Gertzel about this, and he does he does have a lot of theories about artificial intelligence and ideas about how to implement it. And he thinks that uh, blockchain would be a good basis if they could solve this speed problem. But I, I kind of agree with that, actually. I think that's an interesting platform, this decentralized network idea. And then having sort of the, the, the gas element where things only things that provide value or that are good for the network are allowed to continue. And then they they die if they're they're not providing value. I think that's interesting. So gas is referring to Ethereum and the blockchain platform, which we've talked about previously with Kyle Samani in episode six, if you haven't listened to it. How gas works is it's the transaction cost, so to speak, to be able to run something through the Ethereum network. There's a lot of crypto projects that are currently undertaking something like this. It's a similar process to spam filters, i.e. you have to spend a tiny amount of money for every email that's sent, and that's used as filtering spam. If you have to do something and pay for it, then it's much less likely that it'll happen. That said, we still all receive junk mail in our inboxes and at home, so it may not be as perfect and fine-tuned as we would like. As far as the rest of it with blockchain, I think it could be a really interesting new application and a new way to have a truly decentralized society in the future. But as far as how we implement it, there's still a big question mark. Yeah, it's a very young technology and people got pretty excited about it because of the financial speculation aspect, but it's still very, very early in terms of what it's capable of. And I think realistically, it'll be at least a decade before it does something significant that is outside of just the fintech space. It's basically like asking the question, what will social media or what what did MySQL databases do for social media? Like it's such a huge disconnect. It's such a huge gap between like a single database and like all of the phenomenon of social media and and information sharing and connectivity between people and like the ability to instantly connect across the globe, all of this stuff. And it's just like asking the question, what what does a MySQL database have to do with that? What do you think about MySQL databases? It's just kind of like, it's such a base layer of what is possible that it's not really worth talking about in a way. It's more interesting to talk about the abstractions that can be built in the future based off of this technology. But I mean, we're so early in this 
this sort of field and so much resistance and, and work is ahead of us to actually get this stuff adopted in actual society that I think, um, yeah, it might, it's, it's just a bit early to talk about the future of this. I would agree. And at the same time, it's almost never too early to talk about the future because if you don't talk about it, you can't help to sculpt the future or design away some of the flaws. So with blockchain specifically, I would say it's a little bit different than MySQL. I know the technology analogy that people like to use. I think it's slightly different because of the trust factor. But I know you guys are very involved on the on the investing side with both uh, the crypto podcast and then the, the crypto syndicate side. What's what's going on in those arenas? Sure, I'll talk about that. So, well, yeah, we've we've dabbled with, in investing, but it's more of a, a long term strategy. So there are a lot of different applications that could end up being really useful in the future, but it's hard to tell now which ones it will be. So I'm just looking at all the different ones, especially protocols and interoperability tools and kind of the base layer stuff rather than the consumer facing applications. That's what is interesting the most to me, because that's the stuff that can have the widest uh, impact in the future. So that's what I'm focusing on on that side. But actually, in terms of the stuff that we talk about and and the <laughs> like the you know our conversations uh, with each other, we don't really discuss that kind of stuff very much. It's more just um, I don't know. It's a hobby, I guess. What do you guys how I would describe it? Consciousness. It's Consciousness easy, by that's far. An easy one. Lately, it's been music a lot because we're we're kind of switching gears. And uh, we want to write an album and we want to record and stuff. So we're, we're talking quite a bit about that. I'm taking courses in music theory and stuff. But uh, before that, it's pretty much consciousness. Actually, all, all the time we're still talking about consciousness. Well, because it's, it's, you know, it's that frontier. It's the unexplored territory. And that's always the most interesting thing for us. And with, with consciousness, there's just so little known about it, both scientifically and experientially. There's a lot more. If you read the mystics, you know, there are people who have been, who've explored it quite deeply. But again, it doesn't compare to exploring it yourself. And as we're both doing the stuff, there's just always a wealth of stuff to talk about. And there's always new insights and, and new understanding. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's like a, an endless well of knowledge and, and wisdom. And we're about to go really far over the edge. If you want to look into the research discussed in the following section, fringe.fm, look up Dean Radin's research and you should be able to find all of that right there. We're going to jump into the science of magic and the possibility of influencing your environment in more ways than one. I know it's controversial. I know it's interesting. I know it's exciting. So now let's see what we got. I just finished reading this book by Dean Radin this year. He was one of the founders of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Is that what it is? I think so. Yeah. I thought it was like IOTA or something. Anyway, Dean Radin, check out the latest book. I even forget the name too. Yeah. So he talks about synchronicity and talks about all the different uh, scientific studies that have been done about synchronicity and, and non-local awareness and sci all kinds of different psi phenomenon. And basically, I think that's that's one of the most interesting things for me because it's like I'm very science-based. I like to see proof for things, but I'm not so scientific that if there's something that is unproven, that I'm going to disbelieve it entirely. I'm going to say it's false. I think there are a lot of very public scientists out there that are actually like that. If something is not proven, then it is not true. And I don't like that idea. And what Psy Phenomenon has kind of made me aware of is there are a lot of things out there that are not proven, but are commonly experienced. And um, the element of belief plays a big role in synchronicity and Psy Phenomenon and all this stuff. And if you, if you can make your, and that's actually one of the elements of the tests too. So they'll do tests like dice rolls and you predict 
the role that you want to make, or you try and influence the dice to to land on a seven or something. And there are actual studies that show the t- statistical probability increase that comes if you focus on the outcome that you want with an increased amount of energy and a positive outlook and a lot of an- attention. You can actually have a statistical increase in the probability of you achieving the number that you want. However, when interest or excitement wanes over time, then so do the the influences over the dice rolls. But this applies across the board with tons of different things. And I think the higher the degree of your focus, your ability to focus, your belief that it's going to work, the more influence you can have on these these sort of outcomes. And I've been experimenting and we've been talking about this for years now. I know, I know. This sounds absurd. It may in fact be. I've looked into the research from Dean Radin, and I haven't been able to find any faults with the way that the research or the methodology was conducted. If you go to fringe.fm, you can find the links there. Just search for UV or Mike Gilliand or Future Thinkers or Dean Radin. You'll find any of those there. I would love for you to look into and find flaws with this research because this research is very challenging for someone that's very highly logical and left-brained to take. If you find some flaws, comments section, of course, Twitter, anything. Would love to hear your thoughts. So that's one of the more interesting things to me is is when the belief is completely opened up and you, you can just like observe what is and you test and play with this thing, then you start noticing all kinds of synchronicities all over the place. And, and I think that's probably one of the interesting things because it's almost like speaking to the universe. It's almost like having a dialogue on a daily basis. You start, you know, we'll be talking about owls or something and then all of a sudden owls will pop up like everywhere in the environment. How large was the sample set though? A lot of times I, I have a lot of trouble with a lot of things further in this area because of a the the buy-in effects from placebo and then b the law of small numbers so if there's not a large enough sample set the numbers are always going to skew one way or the other and then you can read into them well basically his entire book is about the the legitimacy of these studies that have been done and basically the desire to not believe it that is taking has taken place in the scientific community so people's jobs are on the line they don't want to be seen as woo-woo so scientists will have like private conversations be like, yeah, it was, it's amazing. This new study that was done on synchronicity or whatever. And then anything stated publicly is just completely the opposite direction. They don't want to be public about this stuff. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to risk losing their job or being seen as a hack. So I can see exactly why this is not more mainstream science. But this book by Dean Radin this year really covers that in a lot of depth. The whole thing, it was kind of boring, actually, for me, because like I already, I already know this stuff from experience and reading all the previous books that I've read. But um, the book is just all about studies that have been done. In terms of the sample size, I actually saw the meta-analysis that Mike is referring to. And it was a collection of several different studies done in different universities around the world uh, across three decades. So I think collectively, the sample size of those studies was several hundred and maybe over a thousand people. So it's a pretty decent sample size. Interesting. It It brings up a ton of questions. I was talking with someone previously about the prospect of quantum computing. And just when you when you dive into quantum computing, for me at least, it makes the world seem as if we're running in a quantum simulation itself, where if you actually really start to understand how quantum computing works and the probabilities of whether or not you think about an electron or whether or not you observe it is based off of whether or not you look to observe it, it makes it seem a lot like if you were going to write an if-then if in, a, in a code base for uh, some type of person playing the world of Sims. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find this stuff to be fascinating. And the application, or I, I can't say I understand quantum phenomenon in, in any shape or form, but I do find higher dimensional mathematics to be quite interesting. And I've taken some courses on that and read books and stuff. And it's, um, 
it's quite easy actually to visualize higher dimensions. And there are some physicists out there that are, are coming out with some very interesting theories about the higher dimensions of reality and how we're kind of like a slice, like our, the observable reality is a, is a slice of a much larger pie that we're not aware of, and that there is a lot of symmetry in this pie. If something happens in this re- universe, then it also happens in the negative, you know, bizarro Spider-Man universe or something. So I think it's quite interesting to think of, and one of the examples they use is higher dimensional objects. I think it's interesting to think of thought forms as higher dimensional objects that cast shadows on our reality in the form of physical objects. So that's that could be an explanation for when you visualize something, visualize an outcome, and, and that thing manifests in you know a span of time. You could be creating this higher dimensional object that casts a shadow at some point in time in the future and creates the thing in reality. Um, not to say it just like appears out of nowhere, but the probability manipulation is really the interesting thing that's talked about in a lot of these synchronicity books is the possibility that if the brain is a quantum computer and it's manipulating probabilities in the future, then the whole possibility of synchronicity starts to come into shape. You start to see what it, that it could actually be possible. And it's doing it via a higher dimension. Yeah. Or... Or if the brain's a quantum computer and we do live in multiple universes where everything is happening simultaneously, whatever your brain is choosing is happening more frequently in this one versus your brain choosing something else in a different one. So that suddenly you have a situation where obviously you're going to be influencing it because it's changing your path. Don't worry. Understanding some states is complicated for anyone looking at getting a top quantum researcher on the program so we can discuss and break it down into simple science. But now let's jump back. You know, they talk about the law of attraction and how you can manifest things. I think it's more accurately titled the law of attention. It's what you put your attention to, you will find. And even in physics, we, we keep looking deeper and deeper into space and deeper and, and deeper into the microscope. And we keep finding more and more particles and more and more universes and, or, uh, galaxies out in outer space. And it's, it seems that they are there because we look for them. And I don't know. I, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a primitive explanation, but this seems to be, it does seem to be a factor that you know, the more attention we pay to something, the more we look for something, the more we find there. I think in physics, the most interesting thing is that old experiment a lot of people are aware of, because it happened so long ago now, the particle wave experiment, mm-hmm. where if if something is observed, it's a part like a, a I don't want to have to explain that whole thing. So just the double, slit. The double, slit. The double yeah. slit. Exactly. Yeah. But essentially, that experiment proves that what you observe, you have influence over just by paying attention to it. And I think that's that's a fascinating thing that whatever you're not looking at can be in this like probabilistic quantum superposition of any outcome existing until you observe it and create and it turns it into an outcome one or zero, like one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I think that plays a deep role in in you know any psi phenomenon or synchronicities or that kind of thing. Like there are an infinite number of probabilities out there until you observe the one and you haven't while the thing is in superposition, you have the ability to influence the outcome so that what you're visualizing is what you end up seeing. I think that's probably one of the more interesting ways to explain that. Mm-hmm. You don't know if the cat's dead when it's in the box until you look. But at the same time, yeah. they've done studies as well. If you look at people who self-identify as being lucky, they're more likely to find money on the ground than the ones who didn't. Not because they didn't walk by the money, but because they feel lucky. So they're more opportunistic and looking. I think part of it, part of that could prove or part of that could disprove the the theory. I think there's a lot that goes into it. I want to transi- exactly. I want to transition a little because we'll never get anywhere on this. So you guys, you guys <laughs> have been traveling. I've traveled a lot as well. Where is the coolest place you've been, and what's been the most transformational experience for each of you? Well, Bali is definitely a very alien place. I 
very much appreciate how they've preserved their ancient culture and how much they love it and, and practice it every day. And I don't know how much longer it's going to stay that way because of all the tourism, but I just found it amazing going to see these music performances or dance performances or just observing their daily life and how absorbed they are in, in the, the ritual and the, the presence in everything that they're doing. For me, that was really amazing to see that because it's a stark difference to how people live in the West. They're completely not present in their lives, just, you know, running on autopilot and, and very much in the head. Whereas, yeah, I just, I don't know if I'm just making a, kind of a colonialist observation, like, oh, these people are so spiritual. But it, it, it did have that effect on me. I was very amazed by how they live in Bali. I liked Vietnam a lot. I liked Ho Chi Minh City because I rented a motorbike there and I was, you know, I, I felt very free to travel around and just see things as they are there. It's one of those cultures and cities that I don't think is yet really overrun by tourism and not super influenced or catering to tourism. So you go there and people are just kind of living their normal lives, but in a very urban environment. And um, I just like cities. I like getting on a motorcycle and riding around. And it's one of the, my favorite cities in the world to get on a motorcycle and ride around. Yeah, Ho Chi Minh City is really fun. It's so chaotic and dirty and crazy, but at the same time, somehow it works. Yeah. And one thing that I, I really like about it is that life happens in these tiny little alleyways and it's very communal. Like sometimes you'll just be walking down the street and, you know, somebody will hand their kid to you and be like, oh, hold on. Like I have to serve a customer in my shop. And <laughs> it's, it's That's not a super common thing. It did happen to us once, but yeah. Yeah. Not a super common thing, but it's interesting how like people don't, don't seem to live in this kind of isolated way like they do in the West. It's very communal. And a lot of the time people have their living room uh, doors open and the, the door is basically the whole width of the house. And so you can just observe people living out in the open, you know, they're cooking, they're hanging out, they're playing with their kids. And it's like you get a window into people's lives and it's not this kind of like locked away behind walls thing. It was, yeah, very interesting and, and very different. And people take, it, it seems that people have a very high sense of personal responsibility in Vietnam. Like, you know, they, they take care to sweep the streets. They don't wait for somebody else to do it. And when they're in traffic, they, they're very opportunistic, but at the same time, like, how would you describe it? It's a swarm. The it's a decentralized of- swarm that works really well because your, your one and only rule is look out for yourself first and foremost and don't die. And because yeah, you said that perfectly. That it works. Yeah. yeah. Look out for yourself. Don't die. Don't screw with anyone else and you'll be fine. Just mm-hmm. you sh- If you're listening to this podcast now, Google Ho Chi Minh City rush hour traffic just to see what we mean. It's yeah. hundreds of thousands, millions of motorbikes. Everyone drives a motorbike. No one has a car in the city that goes all across the lanes. You go down the sidewalks. There are no rules other than survive yeah. and get where you're going. Yeah. Red lights, stop signs, all of that stuff are more just like a casual suggestion. suggestions than they are hard rules. And the cops will try to pull you over and give you a fine because you're foreign. It was for me, it was incredible because in Ho Chi Minh City, especially it was like you almost die every day. So you kind of save her life a bit more. <laughs> yeah. When I was first learning to drive, it was definitely like that. I, I was like so thankful to be alive. But then I got used to it after a while and it's just it just became pure fun. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I want to transition the interview a little bit now. So what are what industries are you guys most excited about? What technologies do you see transforming the future in the next five to 10 years the most? Hmm. I have to say blockchain is probably the top of that list, to be honest. Like it's it's already transformed our lives. And usually I think we're kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to adoption of new weird things. Like it's always been that way practically in my life that whatever I start using like five years down the road or, you know, 
on the high end, um, all, I find all my family or friends, they'll all start using something technology-wise or whatever. So I think uh, we've been using cryptocurrency for about two years now uh, is like our primary mode of payment and our primary way of compensating people that work for us. And um, so we've been basically running in, on cryptocurrency and traveling around the world using that. And it's worked quite well for us. It's definitely not like super easy. It's not as easy as Visa for sure. But um, I think it's definitely the future. I think that'll probably have a massive impact to not have governments printing currency and, and devaluing currencies and stuff at on a whim. So mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I do think AI will have a very large impact, but not necessarily in the way that people think. Yeah, with just automation of various aspects and and um, increasing the efficiency of different processes. Like there, there are a lot of systems in the world that are very inefficient. And I think blockchain and AI combined can make those systems significantly more efficient, which in turn will mean that people will have fewer jobs. So we'll have to restructure our society accordingly. And I don't know what the solution to that is, if it's universal basic income or some sort of a resource-based economy or something else. But I think that is one way that AI will transform our lives. And it's, it's just the automation that will force us to restructure society. I think that will be a really, really big thing. It will force us to, or we will have lots of revolution and, and distress in the streets. Uh, would you guys describe yourselves as optimists, pessimists, or realists? Well, I don't know. We, it's kind of based on what we talked about before. I think we have, we come from this belief that there's a, we have a large degree of control and influence over our own lives and our own sovereignty. And that belief, I guess, for most people would be quite limited. Like just the advice that we had when we left Canada, uh, was always very pessimistic, always very like, get realistic, focus on, you know, find a job, this sort of stuff. And we, we always ignored that. And that's worked out like, it's, there's definitely been some ups and downs, but it's worked out quite well. And I would say we're, we're very, very sovereign. We have complete control over our lives in almost every dimension. So I think on that level, I look out into the, the world and I, I see a degree of possibility and, and opportunity that maybe most people don't see. So you could consider me an optimist, but I don't think it's like optimistic and just wishful thinking. I just think it's optimism, but realism at the same time. But then on the other hand, like, uh, this whole like social justice warrior movement and Marxist movement in in Western countries and and like capitalism, the failure of capitalism, the desire of some people to like revert to communism or something like that. All of that just seems absurd, but it's actually gaining traction, and that's kind of scary. Yeah, what do you think, think about that, UV? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, okay. So first, I'll answer your your question about optimism and and pessimism. So I think optimism and pessimism are biases, and I think that they're both false because, well, they're biased. I prefer to just observe what is, but also realize that I am, as a human, limited. I can't possibly observe everything. I can't possibly understand everything. There's always more than what I can see. Therefore, there are more opportunities and more solutions that we don't see. And therefore, even collectively as a humanity, you know, we're just experiencing a tiny sliver of what is out there, a tiny sliver of reality. And we can't possibly know the solutions to our biggest problems, but they, they probably exist and we probably don't know what form they exist in, but they, there's definitely more out there than what we know. So in that sense, it's not pessimism or optimism. It's just an understanding of, well, reality and that there's more to reality than what we can see. Yeah. So, Great yeah. And then, um, to answer your question about communism, well, yeah, growing up in, in the uh, failed communist country, 
and one of the largest communist experiments in history. We had communism for over 70 years in Soviet Union. I can tell you that it's not a utopian society at all. There are certain things about it that worked really well. The free education and the free healthcare was definitely a good thing, but the forced equalization of people was not a good thing at all. The limiting of free speech was a horrible thing. Thousands of people, millions of people died in, in camps or disappeared throughout the history of Soviet Union. And that's what ends up happening when you start limiting free speech. So these social justice warriors who are trying to claim that using the wrong gender pronoun is hate speech and that people should be somehow legally punished for that, that's how it starts. I mean, read 1984 or Animal Farm or any of these books and you'll get an idea or just study the history of, of Soviet Union or China. I think Soviet Union's history is a bit more accessible because it's a bit further in the past. So there's more kind of objective observations of what actually happened because for a long time it wasn't even known to the outside world the things that were happening. So yeah, communism is, is definitely a very flawed system and it pra in practice it doesn't work. As an idea, it sounds nice, but when you implement it and implement it for a long enough time and for many people, it turns very, very ugly and very totalitarian. I think that communism and fascism are kind of the extremes of what we consider to be the left-right spectrum. Fascism is maybe extreme right and communism is extreme left. And they're both equally totalitarian, in my opinion. I think that whatever kind of systems we end up adopting collectively as a humanity, you know, something that follows capitalism. I don't know what that will be, but it will definitely not be either of those things, I hope. Seems like a circle. If you get far around on one side, you actually get into the other side. Communism and fascism are, for all intensive purposes, the same thing for societies. Yeah. With slightly different names. What, uh, what are you guys most excited about today? Hmm. Well, I think we're living in a very amazing time and <laughs> probably every future thinking person thought the same thing at any point in history. But just seeing all the possibilities constantly emerging, all the new things emerging, new ways of thought and new incorporations of old wisdom and new technologies and, you know, just new scientific discoveries it's all adding to the realm of possibility. Like the more data points we have, the more things that we create, that we can create with them. And the knowledge of humanity is increasing exponentially every moment. And it's increasing faster than it ever has in human history. So the, the rate of expanding possibilities is almost also increasing faster than it ever has. And it's, it's overwhelming and exciting at the same time. And for me, that's probably the number one thing. I can. That's yeah, pretty definitely much the same answer for me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's incredible how everything is going faster. I want to challenge for listeners now. What's something you would like them to look into, do, or take action on? Well, <laughs> if I had to be prescriptive, I would say that there are a lot of books out there right now that are very interesting and that you know summarize a specific area in a very concise way. But I find that older books do a better job of delivering actual wisdom. I think that the way that books were written in the past was different than it is done now, because now it's, you know, there are publicists and, and professional editors and formulas for how to sell the most books and how to write the most catchy title. So a lot of the books that are written today are very useful, but for a very narrow purpose. Like if you want to optimize your learning to be the fastest possible, then read The 4-Hour Chef by Tim Ferriss. But if you want to gain wisdom and and to open your mind, then I find older books and classics to be more useful. So definitely read, read books. I would say 
I use discomfort and emotional reaction is sort of a barometer of what I need to dig in deeper to. So if it's someone I'm listening to on YouTube that I really disagree with, then I'm going to consume as much literature and content on that subject as I can. If it's something that makes me uncomfortable or angry or afraid, then I want to dive into that. And I think that has worked out exceptionally well for me as far as being able to hold my own intellectually, but also manage fear, manage uh, expectation, manage how I like engage in the world and plan and all of that stuff. It's been profoundly helpful for, for me to go against the grain and do things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. And by dive in, you don't mean like to engage in the conflict or, or to try to, you know, start a debate with someone necessarily, but to investigate why that feeling is there to point that light of awareness within. And, you know, if there's some sort of cognitive dissonance between your lived experience and your belief set, then investigate why is that? Why is there a dissonance? That could, because if you think about it, there shouldn't be, you know, if you are observing reality correctly as, you know, as best you can with your senses and with your cognitive abilities, then there shouldn't be any difference between your lived experience and your model of that experience. So, yeah. Although it rarely works that, that way until you start to get much more mature emotionally and personally. Thanks for both coming on, both of you guys. Where is the best place for people to check you guys out and see more about what you're doing? That's at futurethinkers.org. And it's a great podcast, guys. I can highly recommend it. If you like Fringe FM, you'll like Future Thinkers as well. Thanks for coming on, guys. Cool. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Sweet. Cheers. Ever notice how you listen to a podcast and the host is reading two or three minutes of ads at the beginning of every episode and at the end? I know I have to skip two or three minutes into a podcast just to get to the good stuff. I hate that. I'm sure you do too. The thing is, podcasts need to survive and advertising seems to be the way to do it. The only problem is their trust and transparency that's provided from the podcasting medium, the you to me, you to us message gets distorted. If we're constantly trying to sell you a nice new mattress or some conferencing software, can you really trust what we're talking about on the podcast and that we're being open and honest and not going with the whims of whatever our advertising may say? We think that that is impossible and that the advertising ecosystem is destroying our society as we know it. We at Fringe FM want to fight this and we think that if you believe in the better world and mission that we're trying to produce, then you would too. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit. Advancing Science Worldwide wanted to work with us because of our mission of trying to make the world better through science and education. If you guys believe in what we do, please visit fringe.fm slash give, where you can make a tax-deductible donation, learn more about our organization, and find out any additional details you may need to be able to write this off for taxes. If you think that this makes your money go further than passing it over to the tax guy, then we would love if you would consider supporting Fringe FM. Again, that's fringe.fm slash give for more details. And thank you so much for your support. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.